In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than 1 billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Weed's interviews are, are back, uh, at least temporarily. Um, I had a chance to uh, chat with Bharat Ramamutri, who uh, was the uh, economic policy advisor on Elizabeth Warren's presidential campaign, but is now stepping into a new role as one of the people on the oversight commission that uh, Congress is creating for this kind of huge corporate bailout fund. We talked about the structure of that fund, his work there, but then also like big philosophical stuff about the history and nature of the corporation, uh, the meeting of the good life, uh, everything. But tethered to economic policy always. It's about the the crisis we're living through, but it's not about the virus itself. An interesting way to kind of expand your horizons, and I think you're going to like it. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. Uh, today, I've got a guest who I'm really excited about. He's uh, Bharat Ramamurti. Bharat, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot, Matt. Happy to be on. Yeah, um, it's uh, exciting times for for all of us uh, podcasting in our closets and uh, launching new new things. So tell us, what is this panel and how did it come about? Sure. So a couple of weeks ago, Congress passed about a two point two trillion dollar bill uh, to provide economic relief and stabilization because of the disruptions caused by the coronavirus. Um, as part of that, Congress allocated about $500 billion to the Treasury Department for economic stabilization. And there's a decent amount of discretion in the statute as to how Treasury, working with the Federal Reserve, can allocate that money across different parts of the economy. And so the Congressional Oversight Commission is supposed to monitor how Treasury and the Fed decide to use that giant pot of money, um, what the terms and conditions are on how it's spent and how it's uh, lent out to people, what industries it goes to benefit, how it helps state and local governments. And And the basic idea is to provide an accounting to people about how their $500 billion is being spent. Let's talk about how this how this works. So this is five hundred billion dollars, but the five hundred billion doesn't go to companies or or into the economy, really, right? It it goes to the Federal Reserve, which then uses it as the basis for like a like a larger fund. Is is am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, it's actually even more complicated than that. Um, so Great. what what happens is. So the Federal Reserve doesn't like to take credit risk, right? So when it lends money out, it wants to be sure that it can recover that money and not take losses. What the money that the the Treasury Department gets under this bill, the purpose of it is to essentially stand in the first loss position so that um, 
for example, you know, you can put in $10 billion of taxpayer money, back it up with $90 billion from the Fed. And if there are any losses on that lending with that combined pot of $100 billion, you know, that $10 billion from the taxpayers is there to absorb the losses so that the Fed itself is not taking any losses. So what this money does is it protects the Fed from taking credit risk and it allows the Fed to lever up significantly the amount of lending it does. So, you know, there's various estimates on this, but roughly speaking, if the Fed leverages this money 10 to 1, we're looking at, you know, as much as $5 trillion in lending going into the economy. Right. So so essentially what's going to happen here is is much more than $500 billion is going to go out to companies. Uh, exactly. With the thinking being that the the vast majority of that money will end up being repaid, but that what's happening is that the federal government is assuming $500 billion worth of credit risk in order to yes. facilitate trillions of dollars in total lending. Yep, that's a good way of putting it. It's interesting, you know, because you hear these different figures kicking around. So people say, well, it's a $2.2 trillion bill. There's a $500 billion slush fund. There's a something. There's a something. Uh, but really, that's not right. I mean, we're, we're sort of kicking around at the congressional appropriations. Uh, but yes. this is a... I mean, we're talking about a huge amount, even relative to the scale of a $16 trillion economy or whatever it is, 16, 19, it's it's a lot. Uh, but this is like, this is real money. Yes, yeah, it's trillions of dollars of, of real money. And that's why the Oversight Commission is so important because the Treasury and the Fed, there are, there are some restrictions in the law as to what they can use the money for. And part of what the Oversight Commission is going to do is to make sure that those restrictions are being followed. But there's also a lot of discretion in, in the law as to how the Treasury and the Fed can allocate the money, right? It doesn't say, you know, exactly 100 billion of it has to go to this set of industries mm -hmm. on these terms, right? It gives Treasury discretion for, for a significant portion of the 500 billion. It gives Treasury discretion to say, here are the terms on which we can lend it out to. Here are the types of entities that we would like to be able to access this kind of lending. And of course, allocating trillions of dollars across the economy has profound policy impacts in terms of which industries are doing better or worse, and ultimately which employees of which industries are doing better or worse. Right. So it, there's like a lot of obvious questions a person could ask about this multi-trillion dollar uh, lending. And the answer is sort of mostly, we don't know, right? So it's like, can I get a loan? Probably not. <laughs> Yes, but I like, don't think you can get a loan. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's a bummer. But like in terms of who can, the idea is that this will go to what to to the kinds of big companies that borrow in the bond market. Is that the, the yeah. basic picture here? So actually yesterday or Thursday, I should say, the um, the Fed and Treasury announced how they're going to allocate about a third of that five hundred billion dollar pile of money. And they announced a lending program for bigger businesses. They announced a lending program for what they call midsize or main street businesses, which are businesses that have between 500 and 10,000 employees. And they announced a lending program for state and local governments. So already they're getting ready to move a bunch of this money out the door uh, and have made a lot of really important decisions about how much money is going into which of those buckets. And and they've also announced what are the terms for the lending in each of those buckets. Okay, so what, what, what kind of terms are we talking about? 
Well, so for example, a lot of the money goes into supporting the primary and secondary bond market for corporations, for big corporations, right? About $75 billion of taxpayer money is going into that, which you know will lever up, I think, into $500 billion of total money. Uh, going into those markets. So let's explain that. What's what's a primary market? What's a secondary market? Well, the pr- primary market is essentially when a company uh, directly needs needs money, right? It wants to issue a bond. They can get lending, get that money uh, directly from this Fed entity. The secondary market is the bond has already been issued. It's being traded around. You know, you can go in and, and purchase that bond, uh, which already exists. Both of these approaches are supposed to, you know, essentially put uh, money back into the financial system mm-hmm. and sort of indirectly or directly, depending on the form of lending, get money back into the hands of corporations, which are obviously facing significant revenue hits uh, in the short term because of uh, the economic crisis around the coronavirus. So the idea basically is if if you were a credit worthy company two months ago or whatever, you are now being essentially guaranteed access to very cheap loans for the period of this crisis. Yeah, I mean, uh, that is a good rough explanation of what's happening, right? Uh It is essentially private lending has dried up and a lot of these companies are facing some tough decisions if they don't get access to lending in the short term at, you know, reasonable rates. And the idea is that the Treasury and the Fed working together can step in and fill that void. Now, you know, the issue is always, what are the conditions that come with the money? And this was a big debate while Congress was thinking about putting together this bill. And the money that went out yesterday that is intended for bigger companies effectively comes with no strings attached when it comes to buybacks, when it comes to uh, dividends, when it comes to executive compensation. You know, one concern would be, you know, we get it. These companies are facing hard times. It wasn't, quote unquote, their fault that any of this happened. We should do something to try and help them and their and their employees. But I think that there would be a significant concern from the public that you're putting a bunch of taxpayer money into the system, potentially as a way of allowing, uh, you know, executives to get their full bonuses this year so that shareholders don't take any losses, even though they've been doing fabulously well overall for the last you know eight to 10 years. And the other thing is that there are no strings attached when it comes to maintaining payroll and the workforce. So potentially, I'm, say, a, you know, a, a big fast food company, and I've been paying dividends and paying my executives a lot. I got a lot of staff. Then this crisis hits. I'm still open, right? Like my, my drive throughs are still running, but I don't have as yep. many customers as I used to. I can take this loan to help me deal with the shock, but yep. then I can still cut staff hours, cut positions if I don't have as many sales and use the loan to maintain my dividends and then figure, okay, when business comes back, then I'll rehire the workers. Yeah, exactly. And it, it depends on the exact size of your business. But yes, mm-hmm. at, at for very big businesses, as I read what the announcement was yesterday, there is no obligation that companies that receive this lending maintain their workforce, even make reasonable efforts to maintain payroll. 
And so there's a concern that taxpayers are putting a lot of their money. I mean, just to put this in context, you know, $500 billion is about a quarter of the total spending in the entire coronavirus package, right? $500 billion represents more than what the federal government is projected to spend on Medicaid this year. It represents, you know, several times what the federal government is projected to spend on housing and education combined this year. So this is a huge sum of money. And it is, you know, you can use it to stimulate the economic recovery, to stabilize the economy is the term in the in the statute itself. But the decisions you make, uh, the Fed and the Treasury make about what are the conditions under which we will lend you this money? And what do we expect you to do in return? are going to have massive implications. And part of what the Congressional Oversight Commission is supposed to do is track all of this, right? Who is getting money? On what terms? How is the Fed making decisions and the Treasury making decisions about how much money should go where and in what order and how fast? Uh, and what conditions are the Fed and the Treasury putting on companies who are going to be receiving this money from taxpayers? And so the the basic story here, right? So this this program in the in the bond market is basically no conditions, right? I mean, you, you have to pay yeah. the money back. That's that's the yeah, condition. exactly. Yeah, as as I read what they put out yesterday, and uh, honestly, it's uh, literally a page long, right? <laughs> uh, which is a little disconcerting when it's yeah. hundreds of billions of dollars. But the term sheet doesn't require bigger companies to make any representations or follow any conditions when it comes to maintaining payroll, limiting dividends, limiting executive compensation, and limiting buybacks. There are some strings attached for smaller companies, the 500 employee to 10,000 employee set that I mentioned before. But even those are, are relatively loose. And as I read what they put out yesterday, the Secretary of the Treasury would have the ability to waive those obligations at his own discretion. So why why is that? What is that sort of middle-sized 500 to 10,000 employee bracket? Like what what's that what's that for? Like what why is there the creation of of a yeah. differentiated program? So basically what Congress has done as I understand it is divide the business world into three categories. So there's a separate small business program the PPP, that puts $350 billion into helping small businesses. And that's defined as businesses with fewer than 500 employees. Then there's all the stuff that Treasury and the Fed are doing in the bond markets, right? The capital markets. There is a set of companies that are above 500 employees, but also don't really operate in the capital markets. And that is this 500 to 10,000 employee range where the Fed needs to sort of needs another set of tools to provide help to that group of folks who aren't otherwise eligible for the small business assistance in the bill. Okay, so this is essentially they 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 cap small business assistance I guess to meet a sort of common sense person's idea of what is small. But a lot of businesses that are bigger than that are just still not big enough to like I don't know, like have a have a guy at Goldman Sachs who's exactly going to set up their bonds for them. Right. I mean, right. particularly you think about it. Right. I mean, it's always one of these things with these cutoffs. Right. But it's like a business that is five hundred and seven employees and a business that is four hundred ninety nine. They're not like operating in different realms exactly. of the universe. So you you create a sort of odd Congress created a sort of odd discontinuity there. And and exactly. so then what 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 is the Fed 
thinking it's it's going to try to do in that middle tier? Well, I think they, you know, you have to do more what you would think of as direct lending, which is the company says, I have a thousand employees, you know, I would like to borrow money from you, Fed. And so then the Fed offers money through one of these lending facilities that it, it has created. It's called the Main Street Lending Facility. And so that money comes with, like I said, slightly stricter conditions than the money that goes into sort of the capital markets for bigger businesses. There are restrictions on dividends and buybacks and compensation during the loan term and some period of time after the loan is repaid. But again, those are waivable by the Secretary of the Treasury. And so one of the things that the Oversight Commission will have to monitor is who is being asked to follow these conditions? Are they actually following them? And who is getting a waiver from the Treasury Secretary potentially and why? I mean, I guess this is a difficult thing for Congress because I both I both understand why you want to create discretion in a sort of emergency type situation. Um, and I also see why people would have a lot of uh, questions <laughs> about how that discretion is is going to be used. And so the, the oversight panel is not empowered to actually stop that, right? It's more like it ensures that there will be a, a prominent public record and some kind of hopefully political accountability for, for yeah. what decisions are made. Yeah, that's right. We will get information in sort of semi-real time from the Fed and the Treasury about uh, what lending facilities are being created for what types of companies, and then subsequently what types of transactions are occurring out of those, you know, lending uh, facilities. We can't say stop doing that kind of lending right. in advance, but what we can do is, like I said, uh, try to explain to the public this is what this all means when we are uh, allocating money in this way. And the other thing that I think is important for us to do is to say, uh, you know, the Fed and the Treasury will disclose, you know, company X got a loan for this amount out of this facility, right? Uh, and we know what the terms are. But the thing that we will have to monitor, the Oversight Commission, I think, is, well, then what did company X do? Did they slash their workforce in half after getting this money? Did they pay out all of their executive compensation as they otherwise would have while doing that? Did they buy back stock? Did they issue dividends? You know, did they shift a bunch of jobs offshore to save money, right? There are there are a lot of um, uh, sort of next level questions that the Oversight Commission should be asking and, and in fact under the law is required to ask because what we're supposed to do is write a report every 30 days that says, here's what's been happening with your money. Mm -hmm. And we're supposed to analyze what is the impact of this program on the financial well-being of American families. It says that in the statute. Uh, not just the financial system, but actually what is the effect at the end of the day on you know people who are getting their paycheck from these companies. Right. So you, there'll be a, a, a track record, a, a semi-real-time-ish reporting on what is going on, and either it will restrain poor behavior or at a minimum create a sort of framework for for some kind of political accountability in the future. Yeah, that's the idea. OK, so with that, I think it's a good uh, opportunity to, to take a break and then talk about sort of uh, hopes, hopes and dreams. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. 
With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media. Pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context. And it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady, renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than one billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. So, I, I mean, I guess like one sort of basic question like this, this thing, it it passed the Senate 96 to zero, um, which you don't you don't often see in, in legislation these days. And and I feel like we've been sort of edging around potential problems here and, you know, ways there aren't a lot of, of strict rules. But like, why? Why was this a good idea to do at the end of the day? I mean, look, I think Congress was reacting to the fact that we were dealing with an unprecedented economic crisis, right? We are sort of voluntarily putting the economy into a coma for some period of time. And, you know, 16 million people have filed for unemployment in the last three weeks. Uh, and millions more are having their hours cut or are being put on leave. And and I think Congress was trying to do a lot of things at once, right? It was trying to get money to into the public health system. It was trying to get money to small businesses. It was trying to get money directly to families in the form of a one-time check or in the form of unemployment insurance. And it was trying to stabilize the financial system and provide some assistance to corporations that, at the end of the day, employ millions and millions of people. But that said, I think it is fair to say there are good ways and bad ways of allocating this $500 billion that, um, that Congress has set aside for the Treasury. And like you said earlier, it makes sense for Congress to provide some restrictions, but also to provide some discretion because it is an evolving crisis. You can't figure out everything in advance as to how money should be allocated and you know what makes sense three weeks from now may not make sense today. But that is all the more reason to have really robust oversight built into it because discretion can be used for good and it can be used for bad, right? Depending on what people's priorities are. I mean, ideally, you would what you would have is like an administration that was considered trustworthy and honest and well-intentioned. But but you have to you have to, you have to work with the administration that exists. Right. And look, part of it is that it's both the Treasury and the Fed. And as I read it, the Treasury can't come in and say, hey, Fed, you have to set up a facility that looks exactly like this and you have no choice. 
you know, both parties have to agree to the design of the program. You know, so while the the administration has a significant amount of influence on it and, and nothing can happen, you know, with this taxpayer money without their agreement, it's also the case that no money can go out the door without the Fed's agreement. Uh, so you have th- this sort of uh, this check and balance system. Right, right. And as this was was sort of going on in, in Congress, Senator Warren put out a proposal that I, I assume you were uh, involved with at some level that had a, you know, a much more far reaching sort of vision for for how to I don't want to say take advantage of, of the crisis, but how to backstop the economy in a way that was consistent with a sort of transformative vision. And like, what, 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 what did that look like? I mean, look, I think there are two goals, right? And I think this is what Senator Warren was getting at. Number one, if we're going to be pumping this much money into the economy, let's make sure that it's going to help people, right? Mm-hmm. Let's make sure it's going to help keep people on payroll, connected to their health insurance, getting their wages, and, you know, also avoiding going on unemployment insurance, which creates its own strain on taxpayers and, you know, all sorts of disruptions to the economy that would also slow down the economic recovery if and when we get past uh, the public health crisis that we're in. So the goal of those conditions was let's sort of tie off the areas where you could spend this money that aren't for payroll, Right. The second is a long-term taxpayer protection goal, which is these industries, many of them over the last five or 10 years have been doing very well. You know, executives have done fabulously well. The companies in many of these industries have been very aggressive about buying back their shares and sending money out the door to shareholders. And again, these companies uh, are not to blame for the virus, but the fact that they made all of those decisions makes them more vulnerable to something unexpected like this virus, right? And it makes them more likely to need more support from taxpayers when something unexpected happens. And so her idea was let's put some rules in place that are long-term, that are long-term reforms to the way that corporations function so that the incentives aren't there for them to just shovel money out the door to shareholders and executives as quickly as possible during good times so that they are more vulnerable in bad times and then come to taxpayers saying, hey, we need your help to get through this you know, unexpected crisis or and we need more of your help to get through this crisis. Right. I mean, this is a question of, I don't know exactly how to put this in, in layman's terms, right? But it's like a company can, you can have your capital structure work in different kinds of ways, right? Some of which are inherently riskier than others. And what we have is an economy where a lot of companies deliberately operate in a sort of high-risk kind of way because they are, as long as you're profitable, the way you maximize the returns to shareholders is to is to do that, right? Is to even carry debt if necessary to, like, Apple, you know, is like a fabulously profitable company, but also borrows money, which is a, a means of of optimizing its its capital framework. But as with a, a lot of things in life, if, if you think about it, right, if you if you try to optimize for a certain kind of efficiency, you leave yourself a little bit more fragile. And corporate America has essentially deliberately engineered itself into a very fragile state uh, for the sake of of maximizing 
returns. And that's not that's not like the reason the economy is in bad shape to today. Like we we know there was a, a virus, but it's a it's a factor in the financial vulnerability of it creates a generic vulnerability to any kind of bad thing happening. Right. That's that's exactly right. And you had a lot of companies borrowing money in order to fund buybacks and dividends, right? And as you said, it put them in a more financially vulnerable position. And, you know, you could make the argument that interest rates are low. Maybe it's a good thing for companies, corporations to borrow a lot of money. But I, I think Senator Warren's position, at least, would be the workers of those companies are not sharing in those benefits, right? What we've seen is sort of historic corporate profits, historic executive compensation, and wages that are ticking up a little bit, but are not nearly keeping up with the pace at which corporate profits are going up. So the question is, where is that money going? Right. And this is the sort of like, I mean, there's a question about this program and the oversight, but there's like a big picture question about the functioning of the economy, right? Which is, the sort of commanding principle of American capitalism for the past generation has been that if you optimize for shareholders, that will maximize investment. And that maximization of real investment will generate innovation and productivity and job growth and wage growth. And that idea underscores everything from Trump's tax plan to, you know, why the SEC started letting companies do share buybacks and a million other sort of specific things. The idea is that if you arrange life to be good for investors, you will get the investment that sort of drives drives prosperity. And that's, I guess, not not how you see the world. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, it's t- not how the data sees the world, right? Ah, the uh, data. Or reflects the world, yes. Uh, <laughs> you know, what you have... If you go back to, let's say, the early 80s, which is when the shareholder maximization idea started to really take hold. Um, and look, there's a, a number of factors, and I don't want to claim that this is the even the dominant one. But around that time, what you start to see is corporate profits go up and wages stay relatively stagnant. You see productivity slowing down, right? By historical standards, productivity growth has been lower recently than it was, you know, a few decades ago. And even beyond that, even if you just look at, you know, how are wages keeping up with productivity? So in other words, if workers are being more productive, their wages should at least be reflecting that, you know, in tandem. Even that connection has uh, fallen apart so that even though productivity growth has been lower, it's still going up at a much higher rate than wages. So what we're seeing is an economy where a relatively thin slice of of folks, you know, sort of the shareholding class, have been doing very well. And the other other folks who are supposed to benefit from the corporation as a concept, you know, most notably the workers, are not doing as well. And, And it's just, it's always useful, a useful reminder that about half of American households have literally no exposure to the stock market, right? They don't own a single share. They don't have a retirement account with any exposure to the stock market. And the top 10% of American households own about 85% of all shares, right? And so when we talk about shareholder value maximization as sort of the defining 
goal of the corporation in America. What we are essentially saying is maximize the amount of money that is going to a relatively small slice of folks at the top, even if it comes at the expense of the rest of the folks who are invested in the in the outcome uh, of that of that corporation. Right. So that's a sort of, you know, I, this is not what is like going to change overnight as the result of of one federal lending program. Uh, but like in in a sense, th- the fact that we now see that in a moment of emergency, we need the federal government to like play the role of the the capital markets, right? Like backstop them. It's a it's a it's a powerful reminder that the sort of capitalist engine, right, is not a it's not exactly a naturally occurring phenomenon. I mean, to be anthropological about it, right? I mean, it's like pe- people trade things and and markets develop uh, as part of human nature. But like the elaborate financial machinery that allows the economy to work would collapse if it wasn't periodically backstopped by policymakers who step in to to do things in times of emergency. Right. And and to go even one step beyond that, I mean, the, the corporation itself is a creation of the state, right? Ah. It is a, you become a corporation by going to a state and asking for a corporate charter. And the charter, the charter gives you certain really important privileges, right? Like your investors are immune from liability for bad actions of the corporation, which is critical to raising capital for that corporation. And in return, that corporation is supposed to provide something of public value, right? Um, and, you know, back in, not to go back 200 years, but the original... No, let's do it. Okay, great. So the, <laughs> the original... It used to be the case that state legislatures would approve corporations one by one. Right? You'd have to pass a law creating a corporation. And the idea was that the corporation would exist for some set period of time, and it would get these privileges in exchange for doing something specifically of public value, right? Like, I don't know, building a railroad or or whatever. And the corporation would periodically have to come back and maybe get its charter extended and show that it was fulfilling whatever its public purpose was. We've moved beyond that, but, you know, that, that's the idea of why we have the corporate form. Right. And and the, the sort of early corporations were almost closer to what you would now call like a like a public-private partnership or, or something, right? The idea would be somebody would say, the government would say like, oh, we wish there was a bridge over here. And then the, we, you didn't have a modern fiscal state. The government wouldn't raise taxes and build the bridge. The government certainly wouldn't sell bonds and then build the bridge. What they would do is they would find some investors who were interested in this bridge building concept, and they would write them a charter that let them create an investment vehicle, build it, operate it, and then you would write out terms on like, what kind of tolls are you going to charge? How are we going to make money? It's not a great way <laughs> to do things, I, I think, for for a, a lot of reasons. But the idea was that the terms under which a corporation could be allowed to exist were meant to be compatible with the investor's financial interests, but fundamentally to serve a public purpose. Right. And and I think you're right. It, it, this the one-off approval approach probably doesn't make sense anymore but the the fundamental idea that we create corporations you know we the people we set the rules for corporate governance right we decide 
there's a board and the board should be made up of these many members. And these are the things that the board should care about or not care about. And here are the things that we're going to hold the board responsible for, for doing or not responsible for doing. All of those are rules that are created by government, you know, state governments in our system. And so the, uh, some of the work that, uh, Senator Warren did uh, when I when I was working for her was around this concept of how do we reform the rules of corporate governance so that uh, these corporations are performing or sorry we swing the pendulum back so that they are a little bit more public oriented than they have been over the last twenty or thirty years. Yeah, right? let's let, let's take a break and then and then let's let's come back to this because it's a it's a fascinating subject and I think like one of the most interesting ideas to come out of the campaign. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so we sort of started talking about the broad themes that underlie. Uh, this was the um, Accountable Capitalism Act with Senator Warren's specific legislation. Uh, but I think the like the, the broader question, right, is that there's the move from the single purpose corporation to sort of generic corporate chartering. And then I, I guess a period of, of ambiguity that lasted for, for several decades and eventually the emergence of a kind of economic and legal doctrine that says that the way we should think of this is that a, the managers of a corporation owe a like legal and moral responsibility to maximize the returns of the shareholders. And that is what a corporation is for, right? Is just to maximize the investment returns of the people who own its stock. And that's a, it's both like a very deeply rooted idea in current American business and legal culture, and also a, a actually a pretty new one, right? Yes. So uh, you know, one of my uh, favorite parts about this is to look at the Business Roundtable, which is this collection of CEOs from the biggest corporations, and it still exists. And back in the early 80s, uh, before this shareholder value movement took hold, they put out an annual value statement, right? And the annual value statement in, I don't think it was 1982, said, you know, the purpose of the corporation is to provide valuable goods and services for its customers, to provide for its workers and its suppliers, and to provide a good return for its investors, right? So it, re it recognized there are all these different competing, in some cases, competing values that the corporation is supposed to have. And, you know, 10 years later, the purpose of the corporation is to maximize shareholder returns, right? Period. 
And there was a big fanfare last year because the business roundtable went back and changed that purpose to something that's more, you know, sort of uh, reflects multiple values again, right? It's not just maximizing corporate uh, shareholder value. We are sort of still waiting to see that those nice words like reflected in any actions that these corporations are taking to actually, you know, pursue those values. But the point is that um, there is a concrete shift in that period of time in the 80s and 90s in terms of what do corporations do with their profits. And it used to be the case that in the early 80s, about 50% of the corporate profits were returned to shareholders in the form of dividends uh, and buybacks. If you look at a more re- recent time period, uh, you know, I think it's roughly, you know, the mid 90s onwards, it's like 93% of corporate profits are going to shareholders in the form of dividends and buybacks. And, you know, that represents that, you know, from 50% to 90% represents a shift of literally trillions and trillions of dollars across the economy. Money that uh, was not reinvested into the firm, that was not going to workers in the form of higher wages and benefits, but is instead being returned to shareholders. And so a part of the the Accountable Capitalism Act, which you, which you mentioned, which was uh, Senator Warren's legislation back in 2018, is to say, let's require big corporations, instead of getting a charter from state governments, where you create this race to the bottom, where each state wants to uh, provide the least restrictive form of charter so that they get companies to uh, incorporate in their state. Yeah, I mean, this is just a small thing, but it's just it's so, you know, it's like people listening, like a company can be headquartered wherever, but still get its charter out of usually Delaware, but but lots of different places. So you can't do like the the normal thing a state would do is like businessmen may be annoyed that the taxes in California are high, but California also offers a lot of advantages. So a lot of big companies are physically structured there. But because the charter is immaterial, it's a pure race to the bottom. It's like if you can pick up the, the you know, like a, a little fee for registering the charter, it's in your interest to let the company do whatever because it has no concrete impact on conditions in your specific state. So that's the, exactly. the idea of moving up to a federal charter. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, as you said, Delaware ends up being the place of incorporation for a huge percentage of corporations because they offer very non-restrictive charter terms and some other things that I'm sure that they will tell you about, like, you know, a (laughs) a professional bar and very good judges or whatever. They have something, the Chancery Court is amazing. The Chancery Court, right. But the idea was, you know, why are we letting the state of Delaware decide what the corporate governance rules are going to be for Walmart, which employs millions of American people and has an enormous impact on the economy. So part of the Accountable Capitalism Act was to say, once you hit a certain size and impact on the economy, you have to get a charter from the federal government. And the charter that you get from the federal government will spell out clearly that your obligations as a board of directors is not just to maximize investor return. But in fact, you have obligations to your workers and to your uh, business partners and to the community. And so, you know, that that was one core part of, of, of her bill. The other core part was a requirement that workers be able to elect at least 40% of the members of the board. 
And so this is something that you see a version of in Europe, uh, most notably in Germany, where for big German companies, workers elect 50% of the board members. And what you see in Germany, based on the data, this is called co-determination, what you see in the data from Germany is higher overall wages, you see more in investment, um, more innovation, at least when you look at it in terms of um, sort of patents that are filed by the companies that, that pursue this model. And during a you know, crisis like this, for example, when you have workers on boards, you're able to negotiate agreements within the corporation that are more protective of workers, right? So you might, for example, say... Uh, it's really important that workers stay attached to their health insurance. We're willing to take, you know, reduced hours in place of you firing so many workers. And and you see that kind of thing happen in Germany where there aren't, when there's economic downturns, there aren't as many layoffs, but you see sort of a short-term reduction in hours and wages. And that allows the companies and the workers to gear back up once the uh, the economy improves. So anyway, there are a bunch of, um, of, of sort of empirical advantages to this model when it comes to not just you know treatment of workers, but also in terms of the economy, in terms of productivity, in terms of investment, uh, in terms of uh, job creation and protection, right? You see less offshoring of jobs when the workers who have the jobs now uh, have a vote on whether you move the factory to some other country, for example. And, and so there's a lot of benefits to that approach. And so part of Senator Warren's bill was uh, let's make this the standard for for bigger American corporations. The, the other thing I've I've heard, at least from German uh, business executives, is that it has a large impact on the sort of culture of executive compensation. Which which at least what they've explained to me is that it's not even literally about the money where, you know, if if you pay the CEO less, there's, there's more money to go to other people. Of course, that's part of it. But it's part of it is that. Uh, you know, I, uh, a businessman was telling me that, you know, he had to put through some some changes he felt uh, that were necessary to the survival of the enterprise, but they required some things that the workers didn't necessarily want. I mean, people people don't like to change. Right. And he needs to get their buy in. He can't just make them change because they they have a role in the governance. And so there needs to be a spirit of as you would have in any joint enterprise of shared sacrifice, right? That even if you could make the accounting math work where, you know, like the CEO gets a raise and the rank and file workers get a pay cut, it doesn't work politically or, or socially in that governance paradigm. So if times are good, you have to you have to spread the wealth. And if times are bad and people need to sacrifice, the top guys tighten their belts too, just because, I mean, I don't know. That's how that's how an enterprise works when you have you have shared control, right? It's a very different ethic. The most interesting thing to me about about the shareholder value revolution actually just happens on that level of values, because I mean, I I know a lot of people um, who who like money. They they'd like to get paid money in their jobs. I, I'm sure you do too. Uh, most of our listeners do. Almost all of them, though, would tell me that there is something else about their jobs that is important to them, right? Like, I, I want to make money with my show, but I also hope people learn something from this podcast and it has a positive impact on the world. And if somebody offered me a way to make like 10 more bucks a year, but the way I would do it is by spreading wild misinformation all the time, like, I, I wouldn't do that. 
right? Because I, I, I mean, you know, I'm not like a monk. I, I, I like money, but I like other things, and so does every sort of normal, healthy person. If you, if you met someone and you at a party and you asked him, "What do you do?" and he said, "Well, what I do is I try to trick people into buying products that don't work." You'd be like, yeah. what, like, what the fuck? Like, what, <laughs> like, what, what are you doing? Like, why, why are you just admitting that to me? Right. But like, yes. that's the shareholder value. It, it embeds into the fabric of large enterprises. This like slightly crazy idea of like what you should be doing with your life. Yeah. I mean, right. It's like, here is a corporate charter that gives you certain privileges. And in return, we hope and expect that you act like a psychopath. Right. Like that's that's what we're saying right now in that you have this singular focus that can come at the expense of all sorts of other things that we value as a society. Right. And so, you know, just to go back to the compensation point that you made, this is also part of the reason why, you know, the the typical CEO made like 30 or 40 times what the average worker did at the company in the 80s. And now it's you know, the average is like 350 to one. And a lot of that is, as part of the shareholder value revolution, there is this idea that the way we align the incentives of management and the shareholder is to pay management in shares, right? So that way, quite literally, it, they have a, a, a financial incentive to make the share price go up, which is the metric of shareholder value. And so what, what, what happens is that that creates an enormous incentive for executives to say we should be doing stock buybacks, right? Because a stock buyback raises the stock price, you know, inherently. You are increasing demand for the stock, the stock price goes up, and what you see is that a lot of of executives will do a stock buyback. Their compensation package includes, you know, thousands or millions of shares, and they sell a bunch of shares and they make a ton of money. So, you know, they have the ability to make a corporate decision that makes, you know, a, a an immediate significant increase in their executive compensation. So another part of uh, of the accountable capitalism bill was to try to remove that link. So rather than just saying, you know, companies can't do buybacks, what the bill says is that if you do a buyback, executives can't sell their shares for three years after that. Mm-hmm. So you can goose the, the share price for about three years by doing a big buyback. So you want to do a buyback, you think that's the, in the best interest of the corporation, um, you're prohibited from selling your company shares for the next three years. And I think that that would, number one, significantly reduce the incentive for these executives to do share buybacks. And number two, you hopefully have it create an incentive for executives to be managing in the long-term interest of the company. I mean, I, I know you are a sports fan. I am a sports fan, right? The worst thing that you can have is a general manager who is worried about winning that year and, and is going to, you know, like trade draft picks to get players that uh, on big contracts that you can use this year, but you're sacrificing the long-term health of the organization. And there's a reason why organizations that have leadership in place that are empowered to think long-term tend to do better, right? And yet at the corporate level, we are creating all these incentives for, for management, for the GM effectively of the company to make a bunch of wild short-term decisions. And, you know, like uh, basically like we want all of the corporations to act like the Washington Wizards. Uh, <laughs> well, and this, you know, ties us back in some ways to the, 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 the crisis where, you know, the uh, tendency of the stock market to make wild gyrations has been very... Uh, evident. Uh, you know, I think normal people mostly don't follow the stock market except when something weird is happening and then and then they look at it and it's it's really weird, right? Like 
share prices, and not just in terms of buybacks, but they they move a lot based on short term information. And like, I don't I don't want to downplay that the severity of, of this virus, the risk it plays to public health, uh, the importance of the of the recession. But when you see something like years worth of accumulated stock market value are eliminated in a week because of a thing that we all know, like we're going to come back from on some level. Right. It's like that's how short term the time horizon of financial markets is it's like bad news is really bad and good news is really good and everything is just like dialed up to 12 all the time and it's not a reasonable way it's not a reasonable way to make organizational decisions on the basis of swings in sentiment that are that exaggerated yes but it's also not a way to make policy decisions right i mean i think a lot of people equate the stock market with the economy right if you watch the news it's often seen as a barometer for how the economy is doing. And I think uh, a lot of people in Congress probably feel like, uh, you know, the market's down 10%. That means we're in this crisis, we need to act. Or alternatively, you know, the market is up. That means the economy is doing great. Even though wages are, are flat, even though productivity is low, even though small business formation, uh, you know, is at historic lows, which, all of which are true facts about the economy pre-coronavirus. And so I, I think... Broadly, moving beyond the idea that the best gauge of how our economy is doing is what the Dow Jones has done this week would be extremely valuable for policymakers. And I think, again, is one thing that that Senator Warren was always focused on, right? What is the uh, what is the lived experience of people in this economy, right? Not the headline numbers. I, I always worry about this as a, as a journalist, and I, I wonder what your advice for me is, because it's both true that financial markets are not the economy. It's also convenient that they uh, they update on a hourly basis right. what's what's happening. You know, whereas it's like people ask me, like we have people from our, from our data team and they were like, what we should do is what we should make a map of the unemployment rate at the state level. And I'm telling them it's like, well, <laughs> the unemployment data is based on March 12th. So it's out of date. And we're not going to get the state level March unemployment data until May. So maybe in June, we can tell you what the situation in Nebraska was in March. And then they're like, oh, that's a that's a bummer. And but like you could you could make a chart of the stock market. Yeah, exactly. I mean, look, I think that's a I don't know. I've heard it somewhere. Right. You you maximize what you can measure. Well, you cover what you can say something about. Right. It's like I would love to know what the state level unemployment rate in California is, but I have no freaking idea. Right. Right. And I mean, I think that underscores the need for better, you know, pseudo real time data about wages. And, and part of it is some of it is impossible to do. But part of it is, can you get better data more quickly about uh, about wages, about the unemployment rate, about, you know, how it, how it's working, not even within a state, but in certain parts of the state, county level data, city level data, all that stuff is is really important. And I think, you're right. It, you know, it's like sports, right? Sports is great because every night there are a bunch of scores to report, right? And that's news. And I think that that's the way it is with the stock market, right? We can There's always news that it went up or it went down and this company did well and this company didn't do well. And so that ends up driving a lot of coverage about what, um, about uh, it, it colors people's view of what is happening in the economy writ large, even though the underlying data might tell, you know, a much different story. 
Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, I think I think that's absolutely right. Okay, um, well, but before I let you go, I, I like to ask guests, uh, you know, if there's anything I, I left out or, or, or you wish I'd, I'd asked you about. This has been a pretty, pretty wide ranging from a, a stimulus bill that passed last month to uh, the history of the corporation. Uh, so what what did I miss here? No, I think we covered everything, and and yeah, I, you know, I would love to uh, keep talking in the future about uh, the work of the commission. And as we start to see more transactions with this money, you know, where's it going? Who's who's it benefiting? And and what does that tell us about what the priorities are of the of the Treasury and the Fed? All right, well, fantastic. Good luck safeguarding the entire American economy. <laughs> sounds sounds like a big job. <laughs> um, <laughs> thanks, thanks, thanks so much uh, for for coming on the show. Uh, thanks as always to our uh, producer Jeffrey Geld, and the weeds will be back on Friday. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than one billion trees are planted every year and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right, $25 a month every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com.